This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Good morning, everyone in the audience. It's time again for NSPS Radio Hour. Uh, seems like I say that about every week. That's amazing, isn't it? Uh, welcome, Chris Klein, for being with me today. Well, thanks for having me in again. I'm, I'm starting to get fairly familiar with your drill now, I think, anyway. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think everybody in the audience probably knows Chris by now. Uh, it, it seems as we run into each other a lot, and so uh, when we do, then that gives me an, an opportunity to uh, twist your arm and get you to come back on the show. <laughs> Because there are always lots of interesting things to talk about. And, and speaking of running into you at different places, uh, you've been pretty busy this year and probably going to be busy next year. Yeah, it's been it's been a busy fall. I got back from Texas, I was in Ohio and Arkansas. Arkansas, they had their convention at a place called Mount Magazine, and it's up on top of a mountain in the middle of the state park, and it is truly a spectacular place. And that was really cool. I met a lot of good people there, and then I was at Rehoboth Beach in Delaware, so... It's, there's stuff going on. Oh, yeah. Oh, well, that's interesting about the Arkansas meeting. I, the only place I've ever been to an Arkansas meeting was when they did it at the 4-H camp. I don't know mm-hmm. if you ever went out there. Uh, it was mm-hmm. a nice venue, too. It's just outside Little Rock, Little Ways. Where's no, my we, we had a couple of people who told me, you're lucky you got to be invited here because when you go to Little Rock, it's hot, is what I was told. But. Yeah, yeah, that's that's probably true. Uh, it's been warm every time I've ever been there, best of my recollection. Where, where is Mount Magazine? Actually, it's about two hours west of Little Rock. It's almost close to Oklahoma. I had a bunch of Oklahoma surveyors in there, which I didn't expect, but met people from Oklahoma and I think a couple from Utah, as a matter of fact. Is it is it like due west or just uh, oh I see it I, I see where it is it's, it's, <laughs> you must have your my, in I got my map out yes yeah, between Little Rock and Smith yeah and when you drive up there you swear they gave you the wrong instructions because it's a quick little <laughs> road up the mountain with no guardrails and and then you get up there and there's this is really nice conference center it was an excellent facility so. Well, that sounds like the mountainous roads that go up the mountains I grew up in, except there's no nice conference center at the top. <laughs> well, that's true enough. <laughs> so what you I know you've had a bunch of topics going on in, in your meetings. Um, just kind of fill us in on what, you, what you've been chatting about. Well, one of the things that's always intriguing to me is just trying to guess what the various states will select from my list of courses. And I'm almost always wrong, so I've kind of given up on that idea. But the one I was teaching in Arkansas is a good overview class. And that one is, you know, it, it really is fun, and it's sort of a smorgasbord of topics. It's like right about the time you get really bored with one, you get switched to a new topic. But, but what I've been finding is seems to be really popular this year is the, well, the adverse possession class is popular. And also the riparian boundaries and the riparian property rights classes have been in a lot of demand, and I've been a little, it's a little sad to hear this, but some people have told me we haven't had a riparian class in this state for like 15 years because nobody will teach it. And, you know, that's something that surveyors need to have good, solid material on. And I think because there's an awful lot of disputes going on, there's an awful lot of money and there's an awful lot of political power involved that a lot of people are kind of gun-shy and don't want to teach the class even those who are who are qualified to do so it's 
but I, I really feel like this is something I, if I'm going to be an educator, I'm going to have to step into and and teach the course because I do think it's important, and I think there's a lot of misinformation out there. So when you're doing that class, um, how much of that becomes localized? And, and when I say localized, I'm talking more about state state rules. Oh, that absolutely. Familiar with. It's it's incredibly important. That's actually one of my tougher classes to build because when I build it, I really have to go back and study the entire history of the case law in that state because I've got, as a matter of fact, I've good, got good federal case law that says states within their borders have broad latitude in dealing with how they apportion property rights along riparian boundaries. So you really can't take much for granted from one state to the next. And now, well, the last time I saw you in Virginia, that was actually only the second time I'd ever taught the riparian class. Now I've taught it and researched it in several other states, and I find the big, big disparities between the states. And for anybody who's licensed in multiple jurisdictions, you can't make many presumptions and take them across state borders. Was that, weren't there some riparian issues somewhat connected to that mock trial we did in Virginia? I'm not sure. I was not involved with the mock trial. That would have been probably Gary Kent. Yeah, it was, it was Gary. I just didn't know if you, you had uh, spoke with him about it or if you even is in that part of it. Uh, it, it was a, a boundary along a, a, a water body, a, mm-hmm. a river or a creek or something. And, uh, and part of the, uh, the issue was def- trying to figure out where the boundaries were when they described them a couple of hundred years ago. Mm-hmm. Well, and Gary is uh, Gary's eminently qualified to teach that sort of material. I'm glad he is. I'm aware. I found out recently, more or less by accident, that Gary was involved in some major litigation up along the shores of the Great Lakes. And I found out about it because I was pulling case law, doing my research, and I found a recent ruling. And they detailed the documentation that he had pulled and the testimony that he had given and the report that he had written. And it all read as if it were very comprehensively researched and well thought out, which is what I'd expect from Gary. But it, it was a little bit of a surprise because I wasn't looking for his work. I was just looking for riparian law. And here I'm tripping over Gary's testimony in this case. Yeah, he, he, I chatted with him about that a little bit last week. You and I had ma- you had mentioned to me that you ran across that, and he and I did a little uh, webinar for Shinner last week, and I mentioned it to him, and he. He told me a little bit about the case, some some of the research that he got into. Well, and I, and I guess that that's a big element, isn't it? Is making sure you do the right research. Oh heavens! And I mean, Gary had gone back and he had done the research all the way back to you know the original formation of the Northwest Territories. Now, fortunately, he was dealing with the Great Lakes, which, while they have their own law and their own rules, for the most part the four states that comprise the Northwest Territories and border the Great Lakes are pretty consistent in their case law. And notice I said pretty consistent, which is not the same as identical. But so Gary had a lot of good stuff to go back from, not only Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, Ohio, but then he'd also gone back and gotten the original government surveys. And, you know, it it was a good piece of work that he had done. And yet... It's 
oddly, in a way, if he'd been working, say, the Atlantic seaboard in a similar case, it would have been more of a train wreck because there's much more discontinuity, there's much more mismatch between the case law and the various Atlantic seaboard states. Yeah, that's and in your adverse possession uh, workshops, now that you've been traveling around a lot of different places, uh, I'm, I'm sure you get a lot of interesting dialogue in those workshops. Oh, that's just a fun class. I, <laughs> it, is, it is great fun. And, you know, I love the topic, and I published my book, and I've, you know, I've got a lot of background information in my head. But people love to talk about adverse possession. People who don't, some people don't like it. Some people don't approve of it. You know, and then I've got, you know, laypersons who don't know anything about it. But everybody loves to talk about it. Squatters, right? Um, I found, this is wild, I found an article in the Asheville Citizen Times, my local newspaper, and they were talking about the number of people who had filed ill, basically documents with no legal basis, claiming property in one county in North Carolina in one year. There were over 200 fraudulent land claims where people were trying to win adverse possession of foreclosed properties. Mind you, 200 properties in one county, in one state, in one year. Multiply that by all the counties and states out there, and you realize there's a lot of this going on. So people who don't know anything about adverse possession are getting on the Internet, and they type adverse possession, and one of the sites that will pop up, the the header will be something like, how to get a house really quick and cheap. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, really, that's the sort of thing that's out there on the Internet, and half of it's completely bogus, but nevertheless, people are reading it, and they're following it, or they're trying to, and and it's pretty amazing. So it's it's got a very, very much a current relevance, in addition to the fact that it's just fun to argue about. Yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting in, in the culture that now... Whatever it is you can look on on the amazing internet becomes the authoritative uh, uh, statement about something, and, and that's that's frightening. Well, fortunately, we haven't gotten to that point. I think if if the judges find it on the internet and then they find case law that's different, that they're going to go with the case law, which yeah, thus far I, and I wasn't, <laughs> and I wasn't talking case. about I wasn't talking about judges or that. I was just talking about in the general perception of the general public. Right. Um, you know, we, we're not using the encyclopedias anymore. We're using, and of course, I guess if you really look back at the encyclopedias, they were probably somebody's propaganda, too, because what, what's the old saying? The, the history is always written by the victors. Oh, yeah. Um, and so, it, but it is interesting that the whole adverse possession uh, part of it, and I, I know that wasn't going to be the topic of our discussion today, but it, it always interests me because, um, and, and rightfully so, I suppose, you hear differing opinions about, how adverse possession applies almost everywhere you go, and every every surveyor you talk to has has a little different twist on how they understand it. Mm-hmm. Well, and part of the reason is because the laws differ from state to state, so that much is legitimate. And, right. You know, but but you're correct, and and I find I think it was when I was teaching, I think it was when I was teaching one of the Delaware classes. I was coming back from break, and one of the students was walking along with me, and he said. He said, I really have to thank you. I, I hope you realize you just completely ruined my weekend. And I said, you know, what do you mean? He said, well, I went in there thinking, you know, I pretty much had everything down and I was comfortable with it, and now I'm realizing that there's this whole mass of data that I've never heard of, so now I'm, now I'm worried. And <laughs> so, you know, I guess it's kind of ironic, but 
sometimes my goal when I teach these classes is for people to walk out of there and be worried. Not not necessarily worried sick, but just thinking about what they heard and, and considering it instead of just, you know, launching out the door on Friday afternoon to go get your beer, which admittedly is a major consideration. Yeah, now that so, you think about it, um, and we had a minute or so before our break here, I was going to say now that you think about it, maybe... Uh, the state of mind that's the most beneficial to the surveyor is is worrisome, or the, the the state of being worried because you don't like you said you don't take things for granted that way. Well, and I think being getting complacent in our profession is a problem. We need to we need to continue to question and grow and think and analyze because falling asleep on the job, being out there surveying with your brain asleep is never a good thing. And it's you know yeah. with the day out day in day out function of our business it's, it's an easy trap to fall into well it is and and of course the the technology we have now tends to make us get a little brain dead sometimes too and depend too much yeah. on that and that's a whole nother subject we could we could talk about and and we may before the hour's over but for now uh, let's go to our first break and we'll be right back Attention surveyors, Seanstead announces the Maggie, the next generation magnetic locator. The Maggie combines the best features of two flagship Seanstead products, the sensitivity and precision of the GA52CX and the visual display and single-handed operation of the GA92XT. Contact your dealer for details or go to www.seanstead.com. Seanstead, the best just got better. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. Quick Stakes is your answer to staking. Lightweight, easy to ride on, easy to use, easy to find, and won't break your back carrying them like the old-fashioned wooden stakes. Have you tried a sample? If not, get a pen and paper and write down this number, 800-438-0387, or go to quickstake.com, that's Q-U-I-K-S-T-A-K-E.com, and order your samples. Ask your surveying supply dealer for quickstakes today. Want to know if your Seanstead locator is still under warranty? Go to Seanstead.com and click on Warranty Finder in the lower left-hand corner. Enter your six-digit serial number, and it will tell you everything you need to know. Out of warranty? Click on Repair Department. But here's a tip. Before sending it in, pick up a $25 discount by going to Specials and Sales under the Buy Now tab at www.seanstedt.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Before we went to break, we were talking about uh, the, the case that Gary was in up in, uh, in Indiana. And that, that was, was that a public trust doctrine case? It is. The the original public trust doctrine comes to us from English common law, and it only originally applied to uh, those shoreline properties, literal owners, where they were affected by the ebb and flow of the tide. But uh, the American courts very quickly looked at the basic concept and said, 
our circumstance is different from Great Britain. Our country is larger. We have large inland rivers and lakes, the likes of which really weren't envisioned by the British scholars with the British Isles. So they effectively expanded it to include the Great Lakes. I believe they put in the Great Salt Lake in Utah and at least definitely portions of the Great Rivers beyond the tidelines, so the Mississippi, uh, the lower reaches of the Missouri, the Tennessee River, various large, massive rivers, which were clearly navigable in the technical sense 200 years ago. And were they were those specific rivers actually called out, or was there some definition of what what's a large river? <laughs> a large river is bigger than a small river, which is pretty much the <laughs> definition you get from the courts, if you'll excuse me. But in point of fact, the, the question was, how far upriver is it possible for a seagoing craft to navigate? And of course, we have to consider this in the light of the circumstances of the state of the economy, the state of the shipping industry, the state of the population, you know, 200 years ago, particularly for the eastern seaboard states when they were formed as a result of splitting away from from the British Empire. So what manner of ships were available that were ocean-going? Well, large sailing ships and not even at that point steamships because steamships were a later invention. So we're really looking at rivers that are so big that literally a sea captain of a sailing vessel could sail up the river. Um, I think it was justifiably expanded to the point where they also included steam vessels of significant draft that were that began to be used for shipping at a later date. But it was frequently, and many states have used the mechanism of looking at the question, where is the fall line of the river? And the fall line was usually very clearly defined in early days because it was the controlling factor in how far inland you could bring products cheaply and easily from the ocean. In other words, where did you have to offload from, say, the Delaware River, either Philadelphia or Trenton, New Jersey? You know, if you come up the James River, you pretty much have to stop at Richmond because the fall line is there. Right. The, the Mississippi River is obviously navigable for hundreds of miles upstream. If you're a, if you're a skilled navigator, you can bring a large ocean-going vessel in. So you look at the specific circumstances of the river. But you know, various courts tried and generally failed to create a specific mathematical formula. Well, it has to be X number of feet wide and X number of feet deep. And... Several courts very early on recognized the futility of that particular approach. But so the public trust doctrine does legitimately, by rulings of the U.S. Supreme Court, extend beyond the, the reach of the tide on some of these great rivers. And you know, I think that's generally as it should be. And it also includes the Great Lakes, which are used for you know, great amounts of commercial shipping still travels the Great Lakes. So that was included very early on by the U.S. Supreme Court. And as a result, Gary had to tangle with it when he was dealing with the shorelines of, of the Great Lakes up there. Right. So for the, for the totally uninitiated in this whole discussion, give us a quick primer on what public trust doctrine says. Basically, at, at its, its original form, it protected the right of fishing and navigation on the ocean. Now, that's the real 
core that we got from English common law. Now, the fun part of the public trust doctrine is that different states have interpreted it different ways, and some have considered it a very rigid property rights doctrine, and other states have considered it more the subject of the the concept of living law, where it will evolve with society. So so its origin is, is almost appallingly simple when you want to talk about it. Where we've gone with it is appallingly complex. And that differs, as you said, from place to place. Absolutely. I've had the occasion recently to study both Delaware and New Jersey, two eastern seaboard states. They were both part of the original 13 colonies. They both started with English common law, and they have diametrically different views of how to interpret the public trust doctrine. Delaware has has stayed with the more rigid uh, approach, carefully protecting private property rights, and New Jersey, by contrast, has said that basically this concept has to evolve with time, and therefore they have expanded the scope far beyond what it was originally envisioned as being. So, and, and, you know, that's just two states. Then we've got Texas. Texas has the whole Open Beaches Act and the rolling easements laws. They've been fighting over that in Texas for 70 years. When, when you start looking around the country and you start realizing how many states may have public trust doctrine issues, you know, first of all, the, the entire Atlantic seaboard, the Gulf Coast, the western states, California, Oregon, Washington State, then look at the states that have a major a Great Lake as a border. So that throws in another four or five. And then we've got the states that border the lower reaches of the Mississippi River. So by the time you get done with that list, you realize there's an awful lot of states that have to deal with this, even some where it's not as apparent. Then there are some inland states that literally this can't be an issue, but not as many as, as you would think at first glance. So does the law apply then the same? I mean, it's obviously understandable when you look at the East Coast, of course, because that mm-hmm. was came over from the whole the whole English thing, and then obviously the the waters of the of the Mississippi and along the uh, the western the seaboard were not connected to Eng- England specifically, uh, but but other countries. And then I, I think about Hawaii and Alaska. So how does that all play out? in terms of sort of a, a uniform doctrine, not a uniform not a uniform understanding of what the doctrine means, but the doctrine itself. Well, then there's another one, which is called the equal footing doctrine, which is basically said the states brought in subsequent to the original 13 colonies come in with the same standing as the original 13 colonies. That doesn't mean they're, they have to, like, share their natural resources or anything like that. But with regards to unsold land, the western states under the equal footing doctrine came in under the same with the same level of authority over their submerged lands as had the original 13 colonies. Now you do get into some extra complications with Texas and California because you have the influence of the Spanish law. But from what I can tell thus far, and and I have studied it in Texas, the the Siete Partidas, which was a Latin American legal treatise of great value, threw some curveballs when you start talking about both mineral rights and riparian rights 
because the Latin American law that came over from Spain was in some ways fundamentally different from what we got from England. But a lot of that has been sort of steamrolled under by the fact that they became states in the United States of America and therefore became, by necessity, subject to the overall framework of American law, which is based on British law. It's, it does become more complex when you go to Hawaii, when you go to the western states. But, heck, we have plenty of complexity just on the eastern seaboard where we don't even have to consider those questions. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say, it's, uh, obviously, when you're preparing to go someplace to, to do a session on this, uh, this is not going to be a canned presentation. <laughs> oh, heavens no. It's, it's as far as, that's why I said it takes me longer to research this thing, because, you know, one is, quite frankly, it is complex, and I really, really don't want to do a half-baked job of research and present data that's, you know, outdated or incomplete, you know, because this is important. And it's becoming more important for surveyors. That's you know, when we start talking about the old English common law and the early U.S. Supreme Court rulings, it's kind of like, well, yeah, this is interesting, but this is all U.S. Supreme Court stuff. We don't have to worry about it. But suddenly we have surveyors being required to go out there and mark the limits. You know, what is the limits of the public trust doctrine of Lake Erie? Because that is the limit between private ownership and state ownership of land. It is a boundary line, and surveyors are being called upon to try to figure out where they are. So suddenly it becomes much more a personal issue with all the modern rulings uh, arguing over beach access. That's, that's a big one. So, yeah, it's, I, I talk about all this theoretical stuff, and, and then when you start getting into the modern cases in the individual states, it's like, wow, this is this is a big deal for surveyors. And, it, and I think you said early on you find a, a lot of those. There are tons. When you get to states like New Jersey and Delaware, where, you know, first of all, the economy is based in significant part on beach access, beach activity. I was, as a matter of fact, when I was teaching at Rehoboth Beach, I went out on the boardwalk and took some photographs, and I used them in my class because they were perfect illustrations of the the tension that exists between private owners, corporate owners, and state ownership. There's this constant tug of war. I, I quite frankly feel no nothing but sympathy for the Supreme Court justices who have to rule this stuff because they have to walk a very fine tightrope between strangling their own economy and unconstitutionally taking away private property rights from private owners. It's, it's a tough line to walk, and I'm glad it's them and not me. So do you find, um, well, I guess the, I'm trying to figure out how to phrase this question because there's so much case law to to look at. So is it adequate to look at most recent case law because that's what they're thinking today, or does it depend on whether there's been a case in that particular area recently? Because if I'm understanding you correctly, even though there's new cases all the time, the judgments won't always be consistent, and, and I'll warn you that we're 50 seconds away from break, so <laughs> I know this is probably going to be more than a, than a 50-second uh, answer, but, but I, hopefully I'm phrasing that question adequately in terms of the research part and, and looking at what all's out there to look at and what's relevant to whatever you're trying to do now and, and what isn't, and, and I guess maybe the answer to that depends on where you are. 
but maybe when we come back, if you, if this is more than a 30-second answer, <laughs> you can talk about that a little bit. Because I'm curious about that, because it seems to me that would be almost a monumental task to try to figure out how to do all the research, even to teach a class, much less to present a case before the uh, a judge. And I guess these are all judge cases and not judge and jury cases. So with all that in mind, I've I've eaten up our seconds. So <laughs> let's, let's come back and talk about that after the break. Okay. Want to know if your Shonstead locator is still under warranty? Go to Shonstead.com and click on Warranty Finder in the lower left-hand corner. Enter your six-digit serial number, and it will tell you everything you need to know. Out of warranty? Click on Repair Department. But here's a tip. Before sending it in, pick up a $25 discount by going to Specials and Sales under the Buy Now tab at www.schonstedt.com. Quick Stakes is your answer to staking. Lightweight, easy to ride on, easy to use, easy to find, and won't break your back carrying them like the old-fashioned wooden stakes. Have you tried a sample? If not, get a pen and paper and write down this number, 800-438-0387, or go to quickstake.com, that's Q-U-I-K-S-T-A-K-E.com, and order your samples. Ask your surveying supply dealer for quickstakes today. With all the back and forth in today's politics, it seems as though the Constitution gets lost in the mix. If you want to brush up on your Constitution, then join Michael Conley every Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. for the show Our Constitution on AmericasWebRadio.com. Attention surveyors, Seanstead announces the Maggie, the next generation magnetic locator. The Maggie combines the best features of two flagship Seanstead products, the sensitivity and precision of the GA52CX and the visual display and single-handed operation of the GA92XT. Contact your dealer for details or go to www.seanstead.com. Seanstead, the best just got better. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Before the break, we, uh, I, as you pointed out during the break, um, <laughs> I, Chris, it took me uh, two two, min- two minutes to ask this question, <laughs> so it requires a, a lengthy answer. And and then during the break, we were chatting a little bit too, and and uh, it's it's a tough. I, I can see how how difficult it is to figure out how to do the research, even figure out how to talk about this issue, but. If if somebody doesn't do it, then that's a disservice too. So, I guess you get elected. <laughs> I get elected by default. Um, you know, it <clears throat> it is it is such a concern to me because, in part, because a lot of what I'm finding, depending on the state, a lot of what I'm finding is running contrary to what the surveying community at large believes to be the truth. In other words, I'm handing them data they don't want to hear sometimes. And that, you know, it's, it's a, quite frankly, it's a fearsome responsibility for me when I'm trying to teach this class. I've got, you, part of your question before break involved what is more significant, the old case law or the more current case law? And I think the answer to that question is all of it is incredibly important because the concept of common law established based on long precedent is one of the the linchpins of the establishment of law in the United States. 
So we have to look at the precedent. We have to look at what they did. But we also have to look at where it's going. And it cannot be part of my job to pull the case law from 200 years ago and completely ignore the rulings in the last 20 years. I'm, I'm getting ready to teach this class in North Carolina, and I've got oh, I've about 50 rulings. I've got photographs. I've got quotes from mariners from years past. I've got a quote from the Secretary of War in 1924 talking about the French Broad River. You know, just all sorts of stuff trying to build this more comprehensive picture of how we look at property rights along literal and riparian boundaries. One of the big problems, one of the biggest problems that we face is the combination of modern legislation, which is sometimes at odds with property rights that were created under a legitimate legal system over two centuries ago. So if the state sold property to a private individual and sold to a specific boundary by laws that were legitimate at the time, then by what power can a legislature 200 years later say, well, that's not what we really meant to do back then, when it's apparent upon consideration of the facts that that's exactly what they intended to do and that's exactly what they intended to sell. And, you know, the, the fact that one of the things that worries me about researching and teaching these classes is that frequently there are, almost invariably, there are regulatory agencies that are charged with administering the coastal waters of the, of the ocean of the states with oceanfront. And those administrative agencies have very different views of what their powers are and where the property boundary lines actually are. So sometimes teaching this can kind of set me at odds with, with the state agency, and I don't like that. But nevertheless, I'm not going to not teach it because it makes somebody uncomfortable. And that's uh, a tough road to hoe with this class. Yeah, I remember when you were in Virginia last year, there was a bit of a spirited discussion going on in, in that regard. Yes, there was. And and to be fair, there there were two gentlemen from the local regulatory agency in my class and they were very professional and they were now they were forceful in their opinions too but that's okay we do want to have discussion in these classes and I wanted to hear what they had to say but that's exactly the sort of thing that concerns me I had even sat in the lobby and talked to those guys before the class they knew what I was going to be teaching and I knew that they were possibly going to take issue with some of it and we had agreed that the class would go on, but uh, it's not a comfortable feeling when you think that a state regulatory agency with that sort of power is basically coming in there and saying, we really don't like what you're doing. No. Yeah, and that's uh, that's unfortunate because you're trying to be objective, and and um, I guess one of the things that, that's troublesome from just thinking about this is when you talk about regu regulatory issues and property rights <laughs> issues, um, that becomes quite a daunting thing. And I'm I'm not even sure who all gets involved in doing the research for these kind of things. But let's let's just talk about some sort of development that's going to occur along a waterfront, whether it's uh, you know regardless if it's on the ocean or or one of the waters that are under this doctrine. Um, that sounds like a pretty scary proposition for everybody to try to figure out what what the rules are and. And particularly if 
the intended usage is not necessarily in line with what the current interpretation of the regulatory agency is in that jurisdiction. And right. I'm assuming that must come up. Oh, absolutely. And and it's this, this tension, this push and pull between where are the property boundary lines, where is the limits of ownership, as opposed to what powers does the regulatory agency have? And, and don't let me for one minute pretend that the regulatory agencies have no power. In fact, they have great authority for certain aspects of controlling and regulating what happens along the shorelines. And, of course, again, it varies from state to state because they've all written their own standards and their own rules. But, yeah, it would be you're going to need a, a group of experts in my mind, if you're going to deal with a major project like that, who are going to have to navigate the complexities of the regulatory versus the property rights that are involved. And case after case that I see is exactly this problem. What rights do you have to use the beach? How tall can you build the condominium? Is it constitutional to put height limits on hotels? You know, all these things can come up, and they are the the tension, again, between the regulatory and the property rights issues. It's not easy. Guess, it's never easy. I guess even even where the property property perimeter lies, right? I mean, that's part of the that's part of the, the process as you're going through from the surveyor's perspective. Certainly, is not only what the rights are, but where does the property line fall? And 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 if anybody's listening to this show, maybe they're scratching their head and saying. Why would any surveyor or ever want to get involved in one of these jobs? Um, but obviously, people are compelled to do that because that's that's where the work is in a lot of cases. Mm-hmm. Well, if you survey, say, in the state of Delaware, have looked at a map of Delaware lately? It's almost an island. It's only connected yep. to the mainland by this one little spit of land way up in the northwest corner, and the rest of it is nonstop coastline. And I had. Some, some good conversations with some people in Delaware while I was there. And they tell me miles and miles and miles it'll be residential, and then miles and miles it's commercial, and then miles and miles it's hotels. And, uh, you know, if you're going to survey in Delaware, you darn well better be conversant with how to deal with a coastal piece of property. <laughs> yeah, being a relatively small state, I guess there's not a lot between the water lines. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's. I don't. Even, I, can't, I don't even know how wide Delaware is, but it can't be what fifty, sixty miles wide, maybe. It's not huge, but hey, what about Florida? It's a peninsula. True. Look, yeah. Look at the huge ghost coastline on Texas, Mississippi. You know, it's it's. There's plenty of states that have problems just as ubiquitous, where surveyors, particularly those working in the coastal areas, are going to have to understand it. Now, I did. It was a little bit odd because I did teach public trust doctrine in El Paso, Texas, and that was probably not the greatest and most applicable place for that particular doctrine because it's a desert. Um, it does have the Rio Grande River, but parts of it didn't have any water in it while I was there. So, But, you know, that jokes aside, there's an awful lot of surveyors who are dealing with these literal boundary issues, particularly when you look at the percentage of the American population that lives within 50 miles of the seacoast. It's it's a huge number of people there. That's a pretty astonishing fact, isn't it? Mm-hmm. 
I don't remember the exact statistic, but it is a very high percentage of the people in this nation who are within 50 miles of the ocean. An awful lot of room to roam around for the rest of us then, right? True enough. It makes me glad <laughs> I live in the mountains. Yeah. You don't don't have to worry about those issues. Not as well, much. Um, one of the things, and, and we can continue on the, on the um, public trust doctrine, one of the other things that you and I chatted about a little bit was this whole idea of conversations between surveyors and their clients and their neighbors and all those kind of folks. And, uh, you know, from my perspective, as these types of issues come up, uh, that in, in this area, not only just, I mean, obviously it's important for all work that we do, but it just points out, I think, uh, the importance of having that, that dialogue. And so often people choose not to do that for whatever reasons. Um, so I don't. Maybe we can. will we got a couple minutes left here in in this session, and we can carry that over into the next. But uh, and maybe I'm going off base here for this particular discussion. But it just seems to me it's a good place to talk about that the, the concept of having those conversations. Well, it is always as, as a surveyor, it's always easier and sometimes more pleasant if you just go out there and deal with your client and do the survey and get the map turned in, but. And and maybe if the boundaries are clear and there really aren't any issues, maybe that's quite sufficient. But particularly where there are boundary disputes or problems, it despite the fact that it feels easier, I suspect we, we do a disservice ultimately to, well, to the public and to our reputation as professionals when we don't take into account what the neighbors are telling us, what the neighbors, what information the neighbors may have, and we're never going to find that out if we don't talk to them. So, yeah, I think uh, shifting gears a little bit on our topics, but, yeah, I think it's important. And quite frankly, the the case law across the country pretty much mandates that the survey collect, surveyor collect all relevant data, particularly where ambiguities exist in the description. And, you know, that's that's basic principle of boundary retracement, where ambiguities exist surrounding circumstances become significant to clarify whatever ambiguities are found in the descriptions. So, yeah, when, there, when there's a problem, we need to be looking at more than just our client's deed and more and hearing more than just our client's voice, quite frankly. Yeah, uh, absolutely true. And, and I'm sure you've, as have I, during working in all the places I've worked, found that the, the more you know about what they know or think they know, the better off you are regardless of what your ultimate decision turns out to be. Um, yeah, and, it, and you... Go ahead. You don't want to, obviously, don't want to go off the deep end and go completely whole hog with parole evidence, even in the face of legitimate monumentation, you know, legitimate descriptions. But we can take parole statements from the neighbors or from our clients, and we can test them. And that's we're one way to... We're going to have to go to break, Chris. Sorry about that. Okay. Um, okay. Let's, let's do that, and we'll pick up when we come back. Okay. Want to know if your Seanstead locator is still under warranty? Go to Seanstead.com and click on Warranty Finder in the lower left-hand corner. Enter your six-digit serial number, and it will tell you everything you need to know. Out of warranty? 
Click on Repair Department. But here's a tip. Before sending it in, pick up a $25 discount by going to Specials and Sales under the Buy Now tab at www.schonstedt.com. This is Dr. George. Join me Wednesday mornings for Medicine on Call and participate in a lively conversation. Learn what's happening behind the headlines in medicine. Understand Obamacare. And learn how to protect yourself and navigate the system. Quick Stakes is your answer to staking. Lightweight, easy to ride on, easy to use, easy to find, and won't break your back carrying them like the old-fashioned wooden stakes. Have you tried a sample? If not, get a pen and paper and write down this number, 800-438-0387, or go to quickstake.com, that's Q-U-I-K-S-T-A-K-E.com, and order your samples. Ask your surveying supply dealer for quickstakes today. Attention surveyors, Seanstead announces the Maggie, the next generation magnetic locator. The Maggie combines the best features of two flagship Seanstead products, the sensitivity and precision of the GA52CX and the visual display and single-handed operation of the GA92XT. Contact your dealer for details or go to www.seanstead.com. Seanstead, the best just got better. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. And we're back for our last segment today with Chris Klein. And Chris, before the break, we were talking about this whole idea of doing our, for lack of a better term, our due diligence and finding all the information that's that's pertinent to the work that we're doing. And that doesn't necessarily mean, as you pointed out, that that you will be guided by everything you hear, but as, as I've always put it, I, I want to know what people think, whether or not it ends up having an impact on my decision-making process. Oh, absolutely. I, you know, I feel like I, I mentioned before break the fact that when people give us parole testimony, that that we test it whenever possible, and we treat it as a theory. And on the one hand, you don't just automatically believe everything your client tells you and on the other hand you don't automatically assume that they're lying either there's got to be a middle ground and you know if your client makes three different statements about three different issues you're looking at and one of them proves to be true then it's not unreasonable at least that the others might also be true whereas if you find that two of the statements that your client made were were completely and clearly in error then it makes you wonder about the remaining statements that he or she might have made. The, and I think it's, it's important to, to utilize the terminology in error because uh, I've always found that, generally speaking, whatever people think they know is what they actually believe. It's not not typically because they're trying to take advantage or, or steal something, so to speak. Oh, yeah. Well, face it, why do we have the statute of frauds in the first place? Lord Hale realized over 300 years ago that memory is fallible. I've got U.S. Supreme Court rulings that say no human interactions are unaffected by time. Memory fades, and that's just a fact of life, and that's why we do keep written records. So, you know, it it, it really does point up the, the frailty, if you will, of using parole testimony without 
a healthy dose of skepticism mixed in, which is not to say that you never use it, but certainly only in certain controlled and limited circumstances. Yeah, I think all of us can uh, can attest to that. I, I'm I'm not only upset about the fact that memory fades, I'm upset about the fact that more recent memory fades more easily than it used to. <laughs> well, and, and that's going back to the whole statute of frauds again. That's why there's in in the original there was an exemption for contracts that ran less than a year. In other words, their basic idea when they drafted the statute of frauds 300 years ago was after a year, people don't remember things accurately. That's that's the gist of it right there. So now it's more complex than that, obviously, but they put that clause in there because short-term memory doesn't last very long. That is very true. Well, before we get uh, away from the hour, uh, you and I had a, a little bit of conversation about things that happen and are happening that one of the reasons that we as surveyors should keep ourselves informed through uh, whatever means we have, through it, whether it's through our societies or our own research or talking to our fellow peers or whatever. But for the longest time, surveyors have been talking about, and, and other people besides surveyors have been talking about, okay, when's the day going to come when we decide that whatever the numbers on the GPS unit are, are uh, superior to where property corners might actually lie. And, and we've we've had a couple of things come up recently, one in your home state with regard to uh, oyster beds and that kind of thing, and then um, something that's going on that's not finalized yet, but it's kind of been thrown out there as a, an issue up in Alaska where uh, I'm sure it's mostly for monetary reasons there's discussion about being less diligent um, when when the original corners are set on, on townships and, and that kind of thing. Uh, by BLM, and I'm not saying good or bad about either one of those things. I'm just saying it points out the fact that we're coming closer and closer to the age where that kind of thing uh, is going to be part of the part of the discussion. Well, one of the things that's of interest to me is that when you look at quite a few of the boundary disputes between states. Uh, they not always, but they tend to fall into two categories when they're talking about sovereignty of the state. One of them is a river boundary, which I'm not going to get into right now. But the other is a boundary line that was defined as a specific latitude and longitude or a specific coordinate. And actually, it was a gentleman out in Texas when I was out teaching there who made the comment just as we were riding around in the car. And he said, anytime you've got a boundary that's based purely on latitude and longitude or coordinates, that it is almost by definition going to be perpetually flexible. And I don't believe that's the exact words that he used, but that was, that was the gist of it. And the whole uh, the Georgia-Tennessee boundary dispute, the North Carolina-Virginia boundary dispute, all these have literally traveled down through the centuries with us and were based on the fact that the king created the boundary line based on a certain latitude line. And then they'd survey it to the best of their ability, and then later on, lo and behold, we would find with new equipment, they were off by a little bit, maybe 200 feet, maybe a couple of miles. But despite the leaps in technology, when we define boundaries purely based on coordinates, we are leaving the door open for somebody else who has, quote-unquote, better coordinates than we have down the road to redefine the boundary line. 
And quite frankly, state after state, court after court has recognized the critical importance of the states and the court's duty to protect the stability of property boundaries. Now, you know, it may be that at some point we literally get to the stage of evolution where we have to rethink that, but it doesn't seem to be here yet. That's all I have to say. <laughs> it's uh, maybe we're getting closer. But historically, the monuments have been the best way to define property boundaries. And one, one very important consideration of this, and people don't think about it, we create boundaries. Property owners create boundaries. Lay people create boundaries. The surveyor goes out there and tries to express the wishes of the prospective landowners on the ground, and the attorney drafts the document. But the people who transfer the title are the landowners who sign the deeds. And they're not trained in coordinates. They don't understand NAD 83 or HARN 95. They understand here's a pen and here's a fence, and here's a tree, and here's a road. But we have to remember when we talk about how property boundary lines are delineated and monumented and perpetuated, that we need to keep firmly in mind who is it that actually transfers the title, and it's not the surveyor nine times out of ten or 99 times out of 100. Yeah, and I think with with our all the things we're doing today with, with technologies and, and in consideration of cost and time and all those other things, seems to me that there's less emphasis these days placed on actually marking a boundary. We, we set corners a couple thousand feet away from each other, but, mm-hmm. and, and maybe, maybe I'm seeing this wrong, but it's just been, and, and this is not new necessarily. I mean, it seems to me it's been going on pretty much as long as I've been a surveyor, uh, but it just seems to me there's less emphasis on, on actually marking the boundary line. So as you said, people can relate to physical location. And well, I don't, I don't know if you hear about, hear that too, but it just seems to me that's the case. I would say it's it's the case for quite a few reasons. You know, one is the leap in technology. Then we have there's all sorts of increased penalties and increased paperwork involved with not inadvertently hitting an under, underground utility line, which a whole bunch of surveyors have dealt with. But um, I, I'd say there are several contributing causes, and the trick is. The common law hasn't changed that way. The common law still says monuments properly set, identified in the deed for the original deed that created the conveyance. You know, that monument controls over the bearings and distances, and that law is 200 years old, and it hasn't changed. So despite the fact that we maybe have legitimate reasons for being more careful before we hammer a rebar in the ground, it doesn't absolve us of the responsibility of marking the boundary lines. True. And and I always, when we have that, that conversation, the audience gets tired of hearing me say this, but if we really cared about that, we wouldn't have pen farms, right? Well, yeah, I'll, I'll leave that to the, the next show with somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that, you know, that's, it's just, I don't know. It's just one of those things that befuddles me. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, why it does so much, but it does. Um, and think, it, and, go ahead. I think it was Justice Cooley, as a matter of fact, who said something about, and I can't get the quote precisely, but the fact that the courts have a an abhorrence of property boundaries 
that move every time a new surveyor shows up. <laughs> and I think understand. that's a very good and very succinct statement of a problem. Yeah, that's a good quote. We should we should post that quote. That's <laughs> I need to get my hands on that one. <laughs> I'll email it to you. I've got it. I appreciate that. Well, we're a little over two minutes out, so I want to make sure that I spend enough time thanking you for being with me today, and, and particularly talking about our, our our underlying topic on on the trust doctrine. And, and I know we've covered a lot of ground, but it's always uh, a pleasure when when you come on the show because you do so much thorough research. Uh, you can speak with some authority, and people enjoy that. I think it, I think it challenges folks to to think, wow, maybe I better do a little more time in, in my research and that kind of thing. So I, I think it's enlightening when you when you come along and spend time with us. I appreciate that. I, I really think that continuing education should be exactly that. It should be education that tests our limits and maybe pushes us into new ideas and new possibly new realms of, of practice uh, rather than having a review process if you will, masquerading as continuing education. Review is not enough. We need to learn more. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And I, I think people really believe that to be the case, too, because uh, I, I think people get bored of, of going over the same review stuff all the time and not expanding their knowledge base, which is what this was in, intended to be, was an expansion of knowledge base. So in our, in our last minute, if you've got any... Uh, any sage things to say about that? That'd be great. <laughs> Any sage things to say? Wow. Um, I'm not sure if I have a whole lot more other than the fact that I, I do think people enjoy the classes. I think part of the reason that people do enjoy my classes is because it is new and interesting instead of same old, same old. I was education chair in North Carolina for three years, and that was the number one complaint. We've heard it all before. We want something new. We want something different. So if I can address that issue and also have them walk out of there a little bit nervous, then I feel like I'm accomplishing what I'm supposed to do. <laughs> yeah, that, that's always a good thing. Well, uh, again, I always appreciate you being on the show with me, and we'll continue to do these as you continue to do your, your work and your research. And good luck in your, uh, your upcoming travels. I know you've got a lot going on this next year. So, again, thanks for being with me today. I really appreciate it a lot. Mm, thank you. And we'll uh, look for you down the road in one of these states, probably uh, New Jersey for sure. Okay. Yeah, I'll be in New York and Pennsylvania coming up and Indiana. Sounds Several. good. All right. Thanks a lot. Mm-hmm. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.